Good morning. I wonder if you found this is uh, this to be the case in your life. Uh, if you've ever gone to visit another country, there oftentimes will come a moment in the trip when something s- surprising happens, something that you're unaccustomed to, something different than the normal routine, which serves as a reminder that you're actually in a foreign country and in a foreign place. It could be something as simple as stepping off the sidewalk onto the street and, oh, jumping back and realizing that they drive on the wrong side of the road here. Or if you are visiting in Spain, you go to the stores in the middle of the afternoon only to find out that they're all closed because it's siesta. Or maybe it's sitting in a cafe in Paris watching Parisians sit and sip on a cup of espresso, one cup for hours and hours chatting among themselves. These surprising reminders that I'm in a foreign place. You know what I'm talking about? In our passage this morning, Peter says, I don't want you to be surprised when you suffer in this place. Now, given what we already believe about the fallenness of the world and the sinfulness of humanity, you would think, of of course I wouldn't be surprised when I suffer. Quite to the contrary, I, I should be surprised when I don't suffer. But C.S. Lewis, he brings this out in his writings, that we are surprised by things that are perfectly natural and normal. I mean, we talk about, we're surprised by the passage of time. We talk about, oh my, look how time has flown, or oh, look how Johnny has grown up so fast, as though that was something surprising, when in fact it would be surprising if the opposite happened, and he didn't grow, or time didn't fly. What Lewis does in his writings, he says, if you find inside your heart a strange desire that should be satisfied in this world but can't be, maybe that's a sign that you are meant for another place. Keeping with the Easter theme that we've been uh, working on over the last several weeks of Easter, our hearts hearts tell us that we are made for a better world, which the Bible describes as a new heavens and a new earth, where poverty disease, cruelties, the sufferings and sadnesses of this life are wiped clean. Our hearts are longing for heaven. And in the meantime, we, we have to walk through the, the difficult sufferings here, as, as Jim just prayed, uh, and, and prayed so helpfully. And that's been our topic throughout First Peter, is sufferings. I want you to turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. We are almost at the end of this letter. We should be finished in a couple of weeks. But here he says in verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised by the persecutions that they were experiencing. But verse 13, rejoice inasmuch as as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. (laughs) Curious that that would be part of the list. (laughs) However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Just as is written in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 51. If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, verse 19. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a metaphor that Jesus uses, very famous metaphor he uses in John chapter 15, where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Because my father loves you, he will prune you. I don't know if you've ever watched a vine dresser prune a vine before, but to the untrained eye, it looks like a massacre. (laughs) When it's all done, you've got this poor little vine bleeding from a hundred different places as it's been attacked by the cruel steel of the vine dresser. If you've ever watched a vine dresser prune a vine, it looks like an absolute waste. There's just devastation lying on the ground. All of these beautiful green Leaves, little green clusters of grapes, which haven't had the opportunity to grow, just lying there on the ground like a, a complete waste. But the wise person knows the vine hasn't lost a single thing, a single part of it that it won't receive back tenfold in the future that is to come. The vine hasn't lost any of its long-term productivity and vitality In fact, it's been enhanced by the pruning. Well, Peter's saying something similar to us when he uses this different metaphor, this metaphor of the fiery ordeal we are, or they were, about to go through. Verse 12, he says it. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. The word that he uses here, the Greek word, is the word pyrosis, from which we get the word pyro, pyrotechnics, pyromaniac, (laughs) fire. Do not be surprised by this particular kind of fire which God will send you through. It's the fire of the metal worker or the fire of the silversmith where you you take the metal and you you burn it. And uh, I guess it all has to do with the different melting points of different substances, the, the dross has a lower uh, boiling point than the actual ore, the fine metal itself, and so you heat it up and it boils it out. Peter's already used this metaphor, if you remember, back in chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, will be refined by fire. Even as I was sitting here before the, during the beginning of the service, this metaphor was going through my head that if you take a chunk of rock that has, let's say it has gold in there, but it has all kinds of impurities, those 
the, those are so intertwined. The, the amalgamation of all of those substances are, it's so mixed up with each other that there's no way you would actually be able to separate the two unless you, you subject it to very intense heat. That's such a perfect metaphor for our hearts. You know, our hearts have these mixtures of allegiances. On one hand, we say, I trust in God, absolutely. I worship God, I live for God. And then on the, on the other hand, we have so many other things alongside of God that we trust in. And it's Peter's saying, the only way you'll ever get the, the one to burn out of you and be cleansed, be separated, is to go through this, this very hot, fiery flame. So first of all, he says, do not be surprised by the burning or the pruning. Secondly, he says, verse 17, that this is a purifying fire. He calls it a judgment that begins with, with God's household, with the church. And, and the point being is that if you pass through this fire, you come out stronger, more fortified, better, and he uses the word salvation. You come out saved on the other side. And then verse 13, he says, let's read it together. Rejoice. Did you really say that, Peter? <laughs> Rejoice inasmuch as you, as you're suffering, you participate in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the characteristics of modern therapy is that I can relate to you if I have gone through the same experience and suffered the same trauma that you have suffered. And, and if I haven't, then you can't really relate to me. Um, you can't really comfort me. I, I disagree with that. It seems to me that even if two people go through the exact same ordeal, their experience of that event differs massively between them. Another way of putting it is that you and I experience, we take in the world, we interpret and experience the world uniquely to ourselves, of ourselves. And we have different pain thresholds, we have different sensitivities, like two people and you send them through the exact same fire, and yet nevertheless they can have very different experiences as, as a result of that. So... Uh, where am I going with this? Paul never says, because I have suffered, therefore I can relate to you. He never says that. And Peter never says that to his churches. But he says, somebody is suffering with you. And who is that somebody? It's Christ. When you suffer, you are participating in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is participating in your sufferings as well. That's what Peter's teaching in verse 13. By virtue of your union with Christ, uh, you never suffer alone. And it's not because therapeutically we understand each other perfectly. It's because Jesus Christ is so intimately attached to me that when I go through the fire, he likewise is burned. I love the Pandora music app. It's on my phone and on my iPod. I love Pandora because it ends up exposing me to a bunch of different musical artists that I would never listen to otherwise. So 
You know that I've got this fetish with Lecrae, the Christian rapper and hip-hop artist. I have my Lecrae radio station, and as a result of it, I end up being exposed to guys that I never would have listened to before. So Triple E, I'm really, any other, I, I got Shelton into Triple E, and if you can imagine that. <laughs> and um, Sharp, dude, he's an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., which is a church where a bunch of uh, congressmen and people on, on the Hill attend. Tripoli, uh, Tadashi, I think Lecrae is an elder in whatever church he's at in Dallas, Texas. Well, the, the guy, the newest guy I'm interested in is Derek Miner. Anybody know about into Derek Miner? He's a 31-year-old hip-hop artist from Middle Tennessee, and his latest album is entitled Empire. There is a song on Empire that gets me every time I listen to it. It is called Save Me. When you listen to the words, I mean, at one point, he's nearly screaming into the microphone as he processes these just extremely raw pain and... um, it's palpable as you listen to it. I'm, I'm going to read it to you, parts of it. It would be a lot better if he was here and could do it live. But The chorus goes like this. I'm feeling like all I got is just ashes. You've been burning my whole palace to the ground. Yes, to the ground. And I don't know what you're doing, but I will stay right here until you save me. God, I need some endurance. I feel like you up in the sky and you torturing me. Even though that's foolishness, I feel like all the pain that I have is what you pour on me. Because I'm tired of burying my relatives. I'm tired of feeling I'm failing at everything. Sometimes I feel like you take everything away. It feel like you got to be mad at me. Are you mad at me? Do you hate me? Are these tribulations just to break me? Man, this can't be the reason you made me. I'm going crazy. Won't you save me? It's like everything around me is crumbling, and I feel like I'm losing my mind. Where are you, God? Where, where are you? And the devil is whispering up in my head to end it all, end it all, yeah? end it all he's saying the Lord don't want me to win not at all and I, I'm feeling like all I got is just ashes you've been burning my whole palace to the ground now, you may not put it exactly like that but you've said and felt things quite similar haven't you We feel like God's hating us. He's torturing me. Feels like we're going loco. We're going crazy, losing our minds. We grow either extremely depressed and melancholy or extremely angry. And all the while, the devil is whispering destructive words in our ears, like, end it all. Well, here's the thing. When you come across a Christian who is that low, who has gone through the fire and they're not feeling like they're not they're not feeling any of this whole metaphor of the metal worker being strengthened and the and the silversmith 
purifying. But when you meet a Christian who is that low and they feel like they're walking through ashes, it does not help to come alongside them and bust open a passage like 1 Peter 4 and say, well, look here. Rejoice. (laughs) You are blessed, sir. You are blessed because the judgment has begun on the house of God. And No, it doesn't. That's extremely demoralizing. When people try to come alongside of us and give us Bible band-aids, glib explanations and simplistic scripture solutions when we're living with these gaping holes in us. Uh, That never works. And neither does 40 days to wholeness. Here's my prepackaged suffering success story. Or here's how I got over my trial and you can too. Kind of cookbook recipes of uh, suffering success always feel, leave us feeling wasted inside. Well, what do you do when you're beside a Christian who's reduced to ashes? What I found is one of the most valuable things that we can possibly do is simply maintain a quiet, faithful presence beside them. A quiet, faithful presence beside their hospital bed, or in their living room, or in the front seat of the car, or walking along the green belt with them so that they're not alone. Quiet, faithful presence that is all the while praying in the background, God, save them. Save me. God, open their eyes to see. God, give them perspective. Help them to see the bigger picture, because at, at any given moment, we only see a tiny fraction of the story that's going on. And when we're in the ashes, when we're in the fire, we it's such a picture of gloom and sadness. It's a picture that, that overwhelms us. It's a picture that would have and has overwhelmed believers through the centuries. I mean, think back to Abraham and Sarah. They went through like a couple decades of infertility. And this, the man who was promised to be the father of many nations. And for a woman in that day, I mean, her whole identity was centered around childbirth. Two decades of infertility. It must have looked so wrong. Moses. Moses begins his life with tremendous um, promise and apparent significance, only then to spend the next 40 years of his life in exile in the Midian wilderness, shepherding another man's sheep. Imagine going from being the the CEO of, I don't know, HP or Boise Cascade, and all of a sudden you're sheeping, you're shepherding for 40 years. You're sheeping. (laughs) That would be a waste of time. When you go to the book of Ruth, you see how utterly bleak and oppressive it is that Ruth and Naomi have lost their husbands. Elimelech, Malon, Chilion, their husbandless in Moab. Or even in John chapter 9, you have a man who has been born blind from birth. And everybody thought that if you're born blind, that must mean that you are under the curse of God. Is it this? 
I mean, there's dozens of examples like this in the Bible which testify to the fact that we're only seeing just a tiny fraction of the story. And any conclusions we reach based on our sojourn in ashes are probably going to be false ones. God, do you hate me? Are these tribulations sadistic and intended to break me? This can't be the reason you made me? I'm going crazy? And they are. The the person who's suffering like this truly is. What they need more than anything else is the quiet, faithful presence of a Christian who is praying their guts out that God would open their eyes to the bigger picture and ultimately do what he does again and again, which is resurrect things. Perfect example of this. The year is 1525. William Tyndall is busily trying to translate his New Testament into English, translating from the Greek, which was against the law of that day because, hey, you can't let the people, the common paupers of England, read the Bible in their own language for fear that they may introduce destructive heresies into the church. Well, Tyndall is, in 1525, in exile, hidden away so that he doesn't die. He's frantically trying to complete this translation, but he's running out of funds. He needs more funds to pay for where he's at to continue. He needs to sell copies of this first edition in order to get more money to do, to do the job. But will people in England actually buy these? Given the fact that if you're caught with the translation of the Bible, they'll send you to prison. You'll be persecuted. What does he do? Where does he get the money? Well, it just so happens that the Bishop of London gets wind of this project to translate the Bible, and he's furious. He's determined to stamp out this nonsense for once uh, for all. So he commissions his agents to go out throughout England and to buy up all of the existing copies of William Tyndall's Translations so that we can have a great big book-burning party, which they did. They took all of the first edition, and they burned it there in the London streets, which turned out to be a very bad strategy. <laughs> because every penny they spent on burning the book went into Tyndall's hands to serve what we know that it was Tyndall's translation, which is the backbone of what Bible? The King James Bible, 1611 translation of the, the King James. And, and that's kind of what Peter's saying. These Christians are being punished for their faith. Uh, they're, every time they're persecuted, it's undeniable to the rest of the society what it's for. What is it for? It's for their denial that Caesar is Lord. It's for the profession of faith that Jesus is Lord. And every time they're drug in to testify in the court of law, it gives them one more opportunity to propagandize the Roman Empire and for God to turn the tables on his enemies and to bring you know, a blessing to the, to the rest of the world. That's, that's what we're looking for, for God to resurrect the circumstances. Let me finish here. A pastor friend of mine, uh, he received a letter from a non-Christian woman who he's friends with. She was in this letter describing how she 
is making it through the pain and suffering in her life. He says she's a really sweet woman. She doesn't have any faith whatsoever, but she's, she's working through, here's how I'm navigating. And basically her way of navigating the pain and the trouble is to try to flip her karma. I've got I to rearrange my chi. And here's what she writes. She says, I've been trying, trying to turn my karma around. So I bought coffee for the person behind me in the drive-thru. I paid the difference for someone's prescription when they didn't have, have enough money in line. Twice I've gone out of my way to return lost items to people. I made a point to be the perfect dinner guest at my sister-in-law's house last week. <clears throat> I know you'll think this is weird, but whenever I'm struggling personally, I try to do nice things for other people anonymously so I can remove the focus from myself, change my, change my fortune and my luck, and it's not working. I guess I need to redouble my efforts. And we start out, as I said earlier in the sermon, we start out the Christian life saying, absolutely, I believe in God. I trust in God. Um, when there's so many other things we trust in, and it is only the furnace that is ever going to separate the, the true allegiance from the false. That's why Peter says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. This is part of his plan for the fire purifies. The pruning cleanses. You are to rejoice, for you are blessed. You have to be careful how you tell other people that, but you are blessed. Samuel Rutherford, the great Scottish pastor, he spoke this memorable quote, uh, statement. He said, It is in the cellar of affliction that the great king keeps his wine, not in the sun-drenched courtyards of the palace. It is in the cellar of affliction that the great king keeps his wine. So you have to go into the cellar to find it. <laughs> Amen.